This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Uh, how, how are we doing? Good. Okay. Great, great, great. Woo! Got the hat, little tilt on it. I like it. Okay. All right. That's how we're doing it this morning. So, well, good to see you. Uh, my name is Corey. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you uh, and just to get to know you some. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 15 of 16 chapters, so that means we are nearing the end uh, of Mark. Uh, we're we're going to go through a good bit today, um, and then it, I think we will most likely end Mark 16 next week. Um, if we don't, then I'm changing things on Stephen and his preparations, so I should probably go ahead and stick with the schedule uh, for his sake. Uh, but Mark chapter 15, uh, when we were unpacking this week, we moved recently, uh, and it has been a beating of a move. Uh, moving is tough, uh, but we, when we were unpacking, we found uh, this in our box. Uh, Stephanie's aunt made it for, uh, I guess probably her, maybe us, I don't know, um, a while back, and uh, th- this is all like pen- penmanship, uh, all the color here, and so penmanship, is that the right word? Um, let's go, we'll go penmanship, uh, and, and so um, I like it because the cross has significance to me, but then I like the colors and I like the intricacy of, of the lines. Um, I, I like straight lines. I'm a little OCD in that way. Uh, give me straight lines, like give me nice blueprints. I think those are just fantastic. Um, and so I just think it looks really cool. And we hadn't had it out in a while, and I found it, and I don't know if we're going to—I think we're leaving it out. I don't really know. Um, but anyways, uh, it made me think about uh, the sermon this week because we're preaching on—I'm going to put it down here. We're preaching on the crucifixion of Jesus, the cross of Christ. And, and, and my guess is everyone here, either presently or in the past or in the future, has had a, a cross of some sort as a piece of art hung on the wall. Maybe it's framed. Maybe it's a, you know, got a little saying on it. Or perhaps a piece of jewelry with the cross um, anybody, any jewelry with the cross on it? Maybe a necklace? Oh, you got some on right there, Molly? Hey, no, you're just pointing to your earrings. Got it. Earrings, uh, perhaps a ring. I used to have a ring with a cross on it. Um, and so maybe you've had a jewelry. Uh, perhaps uh, you're, you're like my, my boys, Justin's, Justin Timberlake and Justin Bieber. You got a t- t- cross tattoo. You got a Jared, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You got a cross tattoo somewhere um, permanently just stuck on you. Um, but, but the cross is one of the most recognized symbols across the world. Like, it, like just, just it, it, if you threw a cross up, it wouldn't be like this foreign, what is that? You know, what's happening there? Um, but it's, it's interesting that it's so recognizable. It's interesting that it's, like, we'll cross-stitch it and, like, stick it on the wall above, you know, the mother-in-law's guest room or something, right? Like, it's so interesting that we'll tattoo ourselves with the cross because, the cross itself, the object itself, is not, is not something that should be really celebrated. Like, the object of the cross is not something that should be so commonplace. You're like, oh, that's pretty. Um, you know, like, oh, yeah, do a little cross right here, maybe like behind the ear or something. Um, you know, I don't know. That's, that's a popular place for a tattoo now. Um, not for me. Not for, right, okay, never mind. I'm sorry. Sometimes things just fall flat. You talk, and you're like, that didn't go anywhere. Um, but, it, but it's interesting that it's so commonplace because the cross historically, was an object of intense torture and pain and execution, right? Like, no one has framed this beautiful picture of the electric chair. 
right? Like, anybody? Anybody got, a, got an electric chair, like, just dangling on their necklace? Just some drip? That's what the kids say, drip. That means, like, diamonds and, like, something like that. I don't really, Casey, like, yeah, you're in the, you're in the ballpark. Okay, but stop now. He's telling me, okay, I got it, I got it. Um, you know, no, no one's got, like, you know, like, man, what's that tattoo? Oh, it's a gas chamber. Right? But the cross falls in the same category of objects in that it is an object of execution. It's an object of torture and pain. But man, we'll cross-stitch that thing up and stick it on the wall. Right? Like we'll pay thousands of dollars for some artwork of a, of a, of a cross. We'll look at this and go, oh, it's so pretty. And yet this was a, a Roman torture and execution device. How did it become so commonplace that it becomes a pretty piece of art that we stick on our wall? How did it become so commonplace that we'll, we'll make it into jewelry and we'll wear it around or, or we'll, you know, we'll do the sign of the cross after we hit a home run or whatever, right? It's become so commonplace. How did, it, did a, a torture and execution device become so commonplace, so transcendent across cultures and, and language barriers and the entire globe. I guarantee you, I, I would not have a colorful, pretty piece of art in the shape of a cross if it were not for the person, Jesus Christ, who was hung on it. I guarantee you, what happened 2,000 years ago on that Friday it is the reason why the cross is so transcendent is the reason why we don't look at it with the same disgust that we would the electric chair or some other form of torture and execution. Because something happened on that day on that cross that literally, I mean, think about this, 2,000 plus years later has changed the way the entire world looks at a cross. So, so what does the cross what does it do to you? What is the image of the cross? More specifically, what is the cross of Christ? What does that make you think of? What, what does it do to you? Does it, does it move you? Is it just another image? What, what does the cross, how, how does it impact you today? That, that's the question I want to ask as we, we talk through this, this part of Mark's letter where he, he just writes through the crucifixion of Jesus. Paul would say in Galatians 6, verse 14 that his only boast is in the cross of Christ that the only thing he wants to boast about is, is the cross of Christ Paul wants to boast and celebrate about this object of execution and torture what, what about for you what, what do you think of what does the cross mean to you what does it do to you as we read I want to look at first the, the cross to the Romans and the cross to the Jews, the cross to Jesus, and then the cross to us. What, what does it look like for, what does the cross mean for the Romans? What does the cross mean for the Jews? What did the cross mean for Jesus? What, is, what, what does it mean for us? What should it mean? So we'll start in verse 21. It says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. 
to carry the cross of Jesus. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Stop there for a second. One thing I noticed, just an observation, is Mark has zero sensationalism in his description of the cross. Like, every sentence, I think, begins with and, 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 and. He's just giving you the facts and the details. And they led him out to crucify him, and they compelled a passerby, and they brought him to Golgotha, and they offered him wine. Like, it reads just like bullet points. Whereas I think, I think for us, and one of the things that, that we've seen, especially in our Western church, is this really theatrical Hollywoodism of the cross. We want to focus in on the nails and every nail pound, right? We want to focus in on the cat of nine tails that's ripping into his skin, and all of those are factual, but really the Bible doesn't do that. When you read the accounts of the crucifixion in the Gospels, and when you read it in the New Testament following, it doesn't highlight the pain, the physical pain that he feels, which I found fascinating because I think that's oftentimes what growing up was kind of, I kind of was like always, when I got to this sermon or where someone preached a sermon, it was always about the pain and the suffering and the, and the anguish and all of these things. And, and, and I think the Bible has no emotional manipulation to the cross of Christ. The, the focus is not the physical action. There are hundreds of thousands of people who died on a cross. The focus is not the incredible pain physically that Jesus went to because there are probably thousands of people that have suffered physically perhaps an even more gruesome death. There must be something else that we're to see in the cross of Christ than just the the physical suffering. It it happened, and, and it's noteworthy, but it's not the main point. It's not what Mark or the New Testament writers are wanting us to see. There's something else that they're wanting us to see. That was just the first observation as I was reading this. I was was kind of feeling this pressure, like, oh my gosh, I've got, this has got to be this powerful sermon where everybody's just weeping and wailing because Jesus, and it's like, you know, you don't see that in the New Testament. So maybe that shouldn't be our focus either. So what are we trying to see? What are we trying to see in the cross for For the Romans, what I see for the Romans when they look at the cross of Christ is complete indifference. It's just another person hung on another cross meant to incite fear and power over their subjects. They couldn't care less that it was Jesus of Nazareth. They couldn't care less who it was hanging on the cross. Oh, you got some robbers in this Jesus, King of the Jews guy, whatever. But, but there was complete indifference. that It was simply a tool used for power to incite fear so that, so that if you, you know, people knew if you cross the Romans, you get the cross. You don't want the cross, so you don't cross the Romans. Right? That was their, their tool. And so you see this. You know, they, they compel Simon to carry Jesus' cross. Why? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. 
Was Jesus tired? Could he not get the cross up the hill? We don't know. We just know that the Romans were going to flex their muscle and, and you know, show their power and be like, hey, you carry the cross. Doesn't matter. Let's go. There's an indifference to who it is. Just get the cross up at the top of the hill so we can put the man on the cross. And so Simon carries the cross up there. They bring it to Golgotha. Their, their plan when they crucified people was to put the, the crosses on the most popular streets that people passed by or on the highest point so that the most people could see. Why? Because the cross, the cross of Christ was just a tool to be used for their power. They were indifferent to the person on it. It was just a tool for them to accomplish their agenda. And so what's the most strategic place? Put them on top of the hill. Put them on Golgotha so that everybody can see if you cross us, this is what happens. It says that they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. This was a, a narcotic, a sedative. And, and it's not sure, was it the Romans? Was it the women that you see at the end in verse 40 and, and 41? Was it the women who, who wanted to ease his pain so they offered him this narcotic, this sedative? But it says Jesus didn't take it. Why? I mean, we could, we could read into it all day. Perhaps it's because he said with his disciples, I won't taste wine again until I come back with the new heavens and the new earth. Perhaps he didn't want his mind clouded in the decision he was making to be fully obedient. Either way, Jesus rejected it. And then verse 24, I, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots to see who should get it. Like, just the casual, factual, here's what happened. They crucified him. Now, what that means historically is that a, a person would be hung in, in a position like this on a cross, most often with nails through the, the wrists and the feet, and, and someone didn't die on crucifixion because of the pain or because of the torture. They would die because of suffocation. That it would take two, three, four days sometimes for someone to die, and eventually their body would just give out, and they would, as, as your body is hanging, you can't breathe, and you have to f exert energy to take a breath, and they would eventually just suffer and die from suffocation. That's factually what is happening here. And the Romans, that, man, there's a man hanging on the cross, they're not even paying attention, they're just all right, who's getting his cloak, right? Okay, hey, you throw, you throw the dice. Let's, let's gamble. There's an indifference to the person of Jesus. He's thrown up on the cross, it says, between two robbers. You got uh, thief number one, thief number two, king of the Jews, whatever. Put him on the cross. Let's display our power. It says it was the ninth hour when Jesus, I'm sorry, the third hour. It was 9 a.m. when Jesus was crucified. I think what can be incredibly common for us is to just have an indifference towards the cross of Christ. I mean, let's be honest. It was 2,000 years ago. Out of sight, out of mind. I remember when 9-11 happened. It was so, so traumatizing. It was so earth-shattering. I stood at a TV and just watched and watched and watched, and you're thinking, how can this be? And what, we're 11, not even 11 years yet removed? And let's be honest. Yeah, it matters. We care. But, but the more time that passes, the more separation from ground zero, the more indifference that grows. 
maybe 9-11 is, is a little more difficult, right? Let's think about Civil War, American Revolution. Or let's think about just things in history that maybe weren't even in our lifetime. Does it move our emotions? Probably not. Not unless we really get into it and really dive into it or find some personal connection to it. I think what happens a lot of times with the cross of Christ is we're, we're just indifferent. We see an image, and we're like, man, that's pretty. That's nice. Tattoo that right here. We sing a song about the cross of Christ, and man, we're just singing words. Might as well be doing karaoke. We read about the crucifixion. We've seen so many movies, so many theaters, so many, so, so many plays, so many, read so many books, right? There's so much. It, it, it's just so common for us to become indifferent. The fact that an image of a cross is not at all a Abhorsome, abhorsome, abhor, abhorrent. Thank you. Thanks for the help. I, I think it speaks to our indifference. Do you find yourself indifferent with the cross of Christ? Just thanks, but it's not really moving us thinks, but it doesn't really change the way we live. I think that's the most common temptation we can have today. There's an indifference. It's kind of a casual approach. There's nothing casual about the cross, and what happened 2,000 years ago has as much relevance and importance in your life and my life today as if we were standing there on that Good Friday. What removes indifference is when we realize how relevant that event was for us today, which we'll get to in a minute. The next thing is, what did the Jews see when they looked at the cross? It says in verse 29, and those who passed by derided him. These would be just Jews passing through and around town. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We, we see the Jews, his fellow Jews, not, not having compassion or, or empathy, but mocking him. Right, right, putting him down in order, why do we mock people? To lift ourselves up. They're, they're, they're walking by mocking him because in mocking him, they're feeling better about themselves. And we see the, the people and also the chief priests and the scribes justifying their sinful behavior. If he was the king of Israel, if he could save us, he would start by saving himself. Since he's not saving himself, he's not the king of Israel. He's not the Messiah. And they are justifying their behavior by the cross of Christ. The fact that Jesus, the Messiah, is hanging on a cross is proof that the crucifixion they led him towards was right. They're so manipulating and twisting the cross of Christ that they're managing to justify their own sinful behavior by looking at the cross of Christ. 
Now, I don't think this is as common, but I do think there are times when we look at the cross of Christ and we think, God will forgive me. It's, it's okay if I do this because I know that God's gonna forgive me. It, we, we take advantage of the cross of Christ to soothe our own conscience, to self-justify, self-medicate our own internal wrong behavior by saying, man, God, God loves me. He's already shown it. He's gonna forgive me. He's gonna still be there. We don't own up or, or confess or make things right because we're like, man, God's taking care of this already, right? I'm gonna have to worry about that. that that's, in the, that's in the past. That's in the past. I mean, I'm, just, I'm just looking forward. And yet we're not actually confessing and, and putting our, our sin in the light of day because we just wanna, and no, no, Jesus will take care of that. And we're self-justifying our behavior through the cross of Christ. Now, I don't think that's as common, but I I've been there. I've 1,000% had the thoughts, gosh, I know God's gonna forgive me. Rather than correcting and and, and writing my behavior, I I I know God loves me. He loves me as I am. It's okay. My caution for you in this is that's a hard heart if we can look at the cross of Christ and use that as a means to self-justification, it's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. And it's evidence of a hardened heart, which is what the Jews had. It was a hard heart towards Jesus, and they looked at the cross, and they somehow managed to say, aha, aha, proof proof that we were right proof that we're good do you ever find yourself justifying your behavior by looking to the cross of Christ that's what the Jews did so the Romans were indifferent towards the cross the Jews were self-justifying towards the cross what was Jesus's approach to the cross what what did he see when he looked at the cross Verse 33 to 37. And when the sixth hour had come, so that's noon, there was darkness all over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. As I said, the the Bible doesn't doesn't really highlight the, the physical pain. Isaiah 53 speaks of, you know, by his, his wounds we are healed, right? Like there's prophecy of, of this. There's, you know, it addresses it, but it doesn't, doesn't highlight the physical pain. What, what Jesus sees when he looks at the cross is the pinnacle of selfless substitution and abandonment from his father. When Jesus looks at the cross, he sees the the choice laid before him to obey the Father and selflessly surrender himself up 
so that we could be brought into fellowship with God. When Jesus looks at the cross, it's a, it's a place of selfless substitution and abandonment from his Father so that we could be welcomed in as sons and daughters. As John said last week, Jesus looks at the cross and he knows that's where he will be treated as a rebel so that rebels could be treated by God as sons and daughters. It was dark for three hours. And Jesus makes a statement that highlights the pinnacle of his anguish, the pinnacle of his weight. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in the history of eternity, Jesus is separated from connection with the Father and the Son. For the first time in the history of eternity, Jesus is separated from the oneness connection that he's had with the Father and the Son. Do you know the pain that would feel? Have you ever felt the pain of relational abandonment? The pain of relational disconnection? Perhaps as a child, you've had a, a mom or a dad take off and leave and abandon you? And you're still feeling the effects today of that abandonment, of that, that person. Man, yes, that's your people. Those are your people that are never supposed to leave you, and then they leave. Perhaps you've had a boyfriend or a girlfriend just up and take off. Maybe you've felt the relational abandonment of an unfaithful marriage. Some say that that's more painful than a death itself. Because, because why? Because in that relationship, you're supposed to be one with someone. And when they choose in that moment to abandon that oneness, it is ripping apart the fabric of our soul. It's incredibly painful. Jesus has been one with the Father and the Son for eternity. And now in this gap of time, his father turns his back on him and abandons fellowship with Jesus. That's the weight of the cross. That's the weight of what Jesus is enduring. Why? Why is Jesus enduring this turmoil, this torture within of the father abandoning, forsaking him? This is where the cross has relevance today. This is where it is essential for us to understand the relevance of the cross. For eternity, God has existed as one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They lived in perfect love and communion and fellowship. The three united as one. And then God says, let us make man in our image. Let's create a world. And so God creates the heavens and the earth and Adam and Eve. Why? Why did God create the world? We've talked about it. It's not because God needed anything from us. God is not hoping, gosh, I really hope that they show up to church today and actually praise me well because my praise, my praise tank, my glory tank, my worship tank is running low. And if they don't sing genuine praise to me, I'm gonna be a mess. No, God's good. God's good. He's got the glory of the angels praising him, and more than that, he's got the perfect love of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit in unity praising him. 
No, God creates the world and all of us in it because his love is so generous. He wants to share this perfect communion with us. The God of the cosmos that created everything that we can even have begun to see in all of our telescopes, that, that, that holds all that in his hands, that God desires to have a relationship with us, and so he creates us to live in this perfect communion with him. We are to be one with God, just like he is one. That's how it begins. And it took next to no time for that to get destroyed. Because Adam and Eve with their free choice to choose obedience and to choose love and to choose worship, instead chose to go their own way, to believe the lie of the devil, and they destroyed this relationship that they had with God. They brought death and destruction and enmity in. Why? Because God is holy and he's perfect and he can't have sinfulness, sinful people mixing in with his holiness. That would make him unholy. That would make him no longer God. If God allows sinful creatures to be in his presence, he is no longer God by definition. And so we created this destruction. We brought in this brokenness. And the Bible says the punishment for our sin is death, is separation, is destruction. Listen, this is why the cross matters to you because you and I were created for this relationship and you and I have broken this relationship by choosing our own sinful way. This is why the cross matters because God is rich in incredible love and mercy and God in his love and mercy made a way for you and I to be restored into that relationship with him. Jesus came and he lived on this earth as one of us. He lived from beginning of his life to end of his life in perfect obedience. That's important because it's what you and I are supposed to have, a record of perfect obedience. We are supposed to stand before God one day and face judgment and have no record of sin to give him. Not a single wrong action, not a single wrong thought, not a single wrong motive, not a single wrong word, zero. We are to be holy as he is holy. We didn't live up to that, but Jesus came and he lived up to that for us. And then on the cross, he stepped in our place and he took on the destruction that we deserve from God. He took on the abandonment that we deserve from God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 describes this so well. It says, God made him who knew no sin to be our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, Jesus supernaturally offers us an exchange. He will take our sin and give us his righteousness. Colossians 2 describes it this way, and I love the imagery of it. It says, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that just means you who had broken this relationship with God and were spiritually dead, separated from him, had no life with him. You who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven 
all of your sins and your trespasses. Well, how does God forgive our sins and trespasses? If we've got a record of debt, if we've got a long list of every sinful thought, action, word, deed, everything, how, how does he just forgive that? God made alive, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What happened on the cross 2,000 years ago is that Jesus took our record of debt from 2022 and he took the weight of it on the cross and he suffered the death and destruction that you and I deserve in our place. And he was abandoned by God so that you and I could be welcomed in. Only God himself could accomplish that. Only God himself, who has lived for all of eternity and will live for all of eternity, could do the work of taking the full record of our sins and the sins of those before us and the sins of us after us by taking the full record of debt on himself. He nailed it to the cross. And when he was buried, he took it to the grave and he took it to the pits of hell and he left it there so that you and I can be declared righteous before God so when we stand before God to be judged we don't have a record of debt to give him we don't owe him anything because of the cross of Christ because Jesus took that record away left it in the grave you have a record of debt you know it as well as I do and it's longer than we can imagine. The weight of, his, of it is more than we can carry. The reason the cross of Christ is significant today for you and for me is because that's where Jesus took our record of debt. Paid the price in full. So we can't look at it with indifference because it matters to us today. We can't look at it to self-justify our behavior because it was the love and grace of Jesus to do that for us. It's the place of love demonstrated that moves us to love him in return. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus stood in our place to cancel out our record of debt so that you and I can be declared righteous. Next week, we'll talk about the resurrection and how because Jesus rose from the dead, he opens up a way for us to live eternally with God today and for eternity. So how do you and I respond to the cross? The Romans were indifferent. The Jews self-justified. The centurion humbled himself and declared Jesus as Lord. It says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last he said truly this man was the son of God the curtain was one of two options it was a, either the curtain inside the holy of holies inside the Jewish temple and no one went on the other side of that curtain except the high priest 
and even the high priest, they would tie a rope to his ankle because if he went in with sin unconfessed, he would die immediately in the presence of God and then have to pull him out with a rope because no one could go behind that curtain because behind that curtain of the Holy of Holies was where the presence of God dwelt on this earth. And so you got that curtain that separated humanity from the presence of God. The other curtain was on the outer part of the temple that kept the Gentiles outside of coming into the temple. Either way, whichever curtain is being referenced here, it was a dividing wall that kept humanity from the presence of God. And in the death of Jesus, that curtain was torn. That curtain was torn because what Jesus did is he made it possible for humanity to now enter into the presence of God, to be near to the living God of the world. You and I today, because of the cross and because that curtain was torn, can actually commune with the God who created all things. We can look at our telescopes and all the amazing things, and we can think, this is incredible, and we can commune with the creator of those things because Jesus divided that dividing wall, that curtain, and he created a way for our sins to be removed by the cross of Christ and us to be welcomed into his presence. How do we do that? We humble ourselves. We surrender ourselves to Jesus as Lord of all like the centurion did. Surely this is the Son of God. Surely this is the Messiah. Surely this is the Christ. He is the one to surrender our lives to and follow. The Bible's very clear that following Jesus is not something of just a cognitive belief, but it is a trust and surrender, so much so that our lives follow him. If we say we believe in Jesus, but our lives do not follow him in willing obedience, we are, we're not a Christian. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Believe me, I still mess up on the daily. It just means that I will willingly say, God, I was wrong. Jesus, you're right. I confess. I repent. I follow you. It means that we will not hold tightly to our sins, but to surrender to Jesus, to trust him, moves us to full obedience a willingness to grow in obedience because we trust him, because we trust that he is true and that his way is best. If we don't trust him, we won't obey him. If we trust him, again, we're gonna stumble, but we will get back up and obey. The centurion humbled himself and exalted Jesus as Lord. The cross is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for exchange. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, it's an opportunity for your record of debt to be taken off of you and put on the cross and for his record of righteousness to be given to you. It's an opportunity for your sins in the sight of God to be forgiven and you to, in this exact moment, enter into a relationship with God, the presence of God by his spirit. But if we don't trust in Jesus, we're still trusting in ourselves just like Adam and Eve did, and we're still keeping that dividing wall between us, even though Jesus has already done the work to tear it down. And so it's an opportunity for that exchange. If you have trusted Christ, the cross again every time should be an opportunity to see the incredible love of God for you. 
that if God was willing to give his son, what is he possibly going to hold back from us that would lead us to what is best? It's an opportunity for us to go, no, 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 I will not believe the lies of this world because Jesus has proven his incredible love for me. I can trust that what he says is best. It's, it's proven, it's evidence, it's demonstrated. God loves you immensely. Immensely. Don't you dare let the lies of hell tell you otherwise. Because the cross of Christ screams loudly that you are loved. And that we can confess, repent, and continue to move forward in a relationship with him. A relationship that we never hit the ceiling of. We never max out. It is an ever eternal increasing abundance of joy in his presence. That literally right now our minds can only imagine so much and God's like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, there's so much more. What does the cross mean to you? When we sing of the cross in a second, what does it mean? Are they just words? Is there indifference? Are we using it to self-justify? How do we change if we are? I think we just sit and wait and confess to God and he'll do the work in us. I was talking to someone this week recently and, and he was like, here's how I know God is real because I've been changed and it wasn't anything I did. God did it in me. God does the work in us. If we'll just sit and wait, surrender, God's going to do that work in us. So if you find yourself indifferent, using the cross toward your own self-justification, don't bury your head in shame or guilt. Confess it. Ask God to change your heart and wait for him to do that work because he will change our hearts. It is his desire. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.